This is our line-by-line, verse-by-verse, in-depth Bible study of the book of Luke. We've had several studies already, and we now come to the end of chapter 2. We just saw Peter's great sermon. At the end, he gave an altar call, and 3,000 people were added to the church. That's the first day. The first day, the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, and 3,000 people are added. And God's been adding to the church daily those who are being saved ever since. God's been doing a work. Now we get to the end of this chapter and it tells us some things about the early church. That's what we're going to learn. What were the priorities of the early church? And are there any of these priorities that we should have? We don't want to just copy the early church because we want to be a church for the day we live in. But we do want to know, is, are these priorities they had priorities that you and I should have as well. As we come to the end of this section, there's some very good things said about this first century church. Listen to what it says in the second half of verse 46 and 47. And they ate their bread, or they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God, having favor with all people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They had these priorities, and they ate their food with gladness of heart and simplicity. They praised God. God gave them favor with people. And God added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now we want that. We want to eat our food with gladness and simplicity. We want to praise God. We want to have favor with all people. And we want God to add to the church daily those who are being saved. That's a move of God and we want to live that way. And we see what priorities led to that in verse 42. Here's what it says. It says, Then they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. So there's our outline, the four things that we're going to look at that the early church did, and we want to know, should we be doing that as well? But let's take a moment to talk about what the church is. I think you guys already know this. This is just in the way of a reminder, all right? The church obviously is not a building, right? We don't ever get a definition in the Bible. When you have a church, this is what a church looks like. You have to have this and this and this in the building. Doesn't do that. Because the church isn't a building. It never is. It is individuals that seek God corporately. That's what the church is. We are seeking God individually together. There is to be a connection between us as believers. And that's what a church is. It's us. Now, Jesus chose the word church, which is the Greek word ekklesia. He's the one who chose it. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, on this rock, I will build my church. We belong to Jesus, and he's the one who built it. We may have some criticism of the church, but if Jesus, it's his church, and he's building it, then you can be sure that the church is a good thing. It's made up of flawed people, right? But it's a good thing, and it's going to be a good thing. And the word ekklesia does not mean assembly, there is a passage that says, don't neglect the assembly of yourselves together. That's not the word that was used for church. The word for church is not a synagogue. I heard someone say one time, well, the, the, the modern day church is what synagogues were in their day. Jesus could have used that. He could have said, I will build my synagogue if that's what he wanted. But he didn't. He used the word ekklesia, which is a Greek word 
That means called out ones, but more specifically, a city council. Athens had an ekklesia. They were citizens of Athens, and they were called together to make decisions for the city. They had authority, and they had power. We are the called out ones, the citizens of heaven, who have been called together as the ecclesia with authority, and, and, and we are able to make decisions. God has given us that authority as the church. And this is really important for us to understand. No wonder Jesus said, Behold, I give you power to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will by any means hurt you. No wonder Jesus said, on, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We are guaranteed success. It doesn't mean that everyone will get saved, but it means people are going to get fed, people are going to mature, and people are going to get saved. Those things are going to happen. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. And he's given us the keys to the kingdom. We can let people in. We know what it takes to get saved. We know we have the gospel, which is the power of God to salvation. Every once in a while, when I'm talking to a non-believer, they'll ask me to pray for something silly. Pray that the wind would stop. Pray that it wouldn't rain. And, and I tell them, I don't pray for those kind of things, but I'll pray for you. And I have the keys to the kingdom. I can let you in. Now, sometimes they go a little further. What do you mean you have the keys to the kingdom? Sometimes they're like, I don't want to get any closer to that at all. And they'll just change the subject immediately. But we do have the keys to the kingdom and we can let people in because we know the gospel of Jesus Christ and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that gospel has been entrusted to the ecclesia, to the church. We've been given the gospel. We've been entrusted with the gospel. That's who we are in the world. The Bible says we are ambassadors of Christ as if God is imploring through us, be reconciled to God. That's who you are. God's using you to help reconcile the world to himself. And we want to be that. We want to be what God calls us to be. Now let's look at this breakdown here. It says they continued steadfastly. This means these four things that we mentioned, they're going to make a priority. They're going to do them. And I believe that any effective church is going to make these four things a priority. And I'll share why as we make our way through here. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The 12 apostles were a bridge between the miracles of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, and the church. There had to be something to bridge because Jesus was going to ascend and go to the Father and so he had to leave someone behind that had authority and that's the apostles. And so the apostles were the bridge. They saw the ministry of Jesus. They saw the miracles of Jesus. They heard the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus even said in John, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and he's going to bring to your memory all the things that I said to you and they bring us the New Testament. The New Testament is a result of the apostles' doctrine. We are in the Apostles' Doctrine today. We could be doing a scripture study or a Bible study and not be in the Apostles' Doctrine. We would be in the book of Psalms or we would be in the book of Genesis or we would be in the book of Joshua. The Apostles' Doctrine is the New Testament. It, they are responsible for passing that on to us. In fact, when you read books that weren't written by apostles, you have Jude, James, Luke, and Mark. These weren't written by apostles, 
but the source of what they wrote were apostles. They interacted with apostles. God allowed them to write scripture through the source of the apostles. So we are studying the apostles' doctrine today, and it is the authority of God in our lives. Now, every once in a while, someone will make this accusation, and they make this accusation of Calvary chapels. You guys worship the Bible. Let me ask you, have you ever heard anybody worship the Bible? Oh, Bible, we praise you. Oh, we lift you up. Oh, you're wonderful. We don't worship the Bible. We know clearly this is God's way of communicating to us the truth of who we are supposed to worship. That we worship the one who is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the Bible gives us that direction. But we know we learn truth from the Word of God. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And it is God's Word that gives us that truth. Now, as I said, these apostles were the bridge. They also are doing miracles. They had a special ability. This is not the gifting of the Holy Spirit that they have. They have a gifting as apostles. And let me just say this now when we'll get it out of the way. There are people today that are claiming that they are apostles on the same level as Peter and John and Paul. They are not. They are, they're, they, an apostle means a sent out one. So I was sent out 38 years ago by Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque to Tucson to start a church, to see what God was going to do, to see if God wanted to start a church. So I could say, I'm Apostle Robert Furrow. I don't like it. I'm not going to use it. Please don't call me Apostle, all right? Not even teasing me, those of you guys who probably won't let this go now. But even if I said I'm an Apostle, I simply mean I was sent out, that's all. I don't mean I have the same authority that those 12 had. Why? Because their names are written on the foundation of the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven that we're going to live in in eternity. And there's only 12 foundations. And there's 12 apostles whose names are written on that. And this new movement that there are apostles like there were in their day with the same authority that they have, we soundly reject. It is non-biblical. There's no direction for it. We reject it wholeheartedly and completely. But the word of God we receive. Listen to what Jesus said about his word. Jesus said, it is written, this is Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. For you to be able to live the life Christ wants you to live, you have to feed on his word. Paul, uh, Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3. As newborn babes... Desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Do you desire the pure milk of the word? Listen, we live in a time that is unlike any other time where you can dive in and study the word of God in an incredible way. When I first became a pastor, I bought as many books as I could I had a library that was at the West Campus that lined the entire walls of the, the, my study. And then at my house, I had more of them. I had a book, uh, $125 a month, which back in the 80s, that was a lot of money, all right? Uh, $125 a month that was given to me by the church to buy books because I needed to have those books in order to find out what the, the, the things in the Bible were saying. It was where I could research, what, how I could do my own research. So I had my own library. It's a lot of the things I learned. 
But today, you can, you can start going on, just start typing in information. What does the Bible mean when it says this? Now, you have to be careful and know where your, what your sources are. You've got to know what web page you're on, whether or not this person can be trusted, what video you're watching. And I've given you this warning before, and I want to give it again. When you, when you see um, a video on the deity of Jesus from... Uh, I don't know, a, a church that's well-known, okay, from Grace Chapel with John MacArthur, the deity of Christ from Grace Chapel. Even if it's not John MacArthur, you can pretty much trust it. We don't agree with everything that, that John MacArthur says, but you can pretty much trust it. If you see a ministry that has a random name, like um, a Loving Hearts Ministries, if there's one out there, I don't know of it, all right? I'm just saying, you see something with a random name and they don't tell you who they are, it could be anybody. They're hiding behind a, some kind of a name and a facade that they're not telling who you who you are. Don't take that with authority until you learn who they are. I'll tell you a little trick I do is I'll go and look up who is Loving Hearts Ministries. And then all of a sudden it will say Seventh-day Adventist, Church of Christ. Um, uh, it, it's somebody who wants to hide from you who they are so they can get you to believe what they believe. And I'm not saying the Church of Christ or Seventh-day Adventist aren't Christians. I'm simply saying, come out and tell us who you are. Put it in the front. Put it in the description. Say, we are the Church of Christ doing this. We are Seventh-day Adventist doing that. We are Calvary Chapel of Tucson. And that's who we are. If you know where the source is from, take it. If you don't, then ignore it. Because you don't know what you're getting. It's like, it's, you're, you're, it's like drinking water from a river. It's risky. Right? You don't know. You're going to drink it. You could, it could be okay. You might be all right, but we live in a time when you can look up the source of where you're learning information from and you can learn and study anything. You could become an expert on the deity of Jesus. You can by spending a couple of weeks pouring in to what it says in the Bible about Jesus being God. And you can be able to answer that. That's an unprecedented time. I'll tell you for centuries, People didn't have that ability. They had to just listen to people who were schooled who led them down the wrong road because nobody knew. Now we can fact check people. We can search the scriptures daily to find out whether or not these things are true. We have more and better manuscripts of the Bible today than at any other time. The apostles' doctrine is more available to us than any other time that in all of the world's history. Now, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this about scripture. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God, is profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, for doctrine it said as well, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Did you get that there? It's available so I'm thoroughly equipped. As a, as a pastor, God's word thoroughly equips me to do the work God's called me to do. I don't need anything that's not in the scriptures. I don't need somebody coming to me with their philosophy on church growth or their philosophy on the best way to minister to people. I'm not saying that stuff can't be valuable. I'm saying I don't need it. Everything I need to do the work that God's called me to do, everything you need is in the apostles' doctrine. It's all there in God's word. Listen to what it says in Psalms 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet 
and a light unto my path. Why was the early church successful? Because they stuck to the apostles' doctrine. And that's what we should do as well. And if I could take a moment to talk to pastors who, who may be listening to this, who may be watching this, we are not interested in you bouncing off of a text into your four points and your philosophies. That's not going to change anyone's life. It may be good, it may be deep, it may be quippy, it may be something that people go, wow, that's really neat to hear, but it doesn't change lives like God's Word changes lives. I tell young pastors, when you when young pastors who teach for me, I say, take the Word of God and cover the passage well. Whether or not you hit it out of the park and hit a home run, whether people go, that was great, I don't care. I just want to know, did you cover the text well? Did people leave knowing the text that you were covering? That's what you do. And then if you hit it out of the park, praise God, that's a bonus. You just covered the text well. That ought to be our greatest concern. Not that people are going to leave going, wow, well, he's a really good teacher. Wow, he's a really good pastor. What should be happening is people leaving with their lives being transformed by the water of the word. It gets into our lives and it cleanses us and it does work. It gets into our hearts. It works in the lives of those who believe. And so we put the word of God out there. They did it. We should do it. They were held steadfastly with the apostles doctrine. The second thing was and fellowship. Now fellowship here is the word koinonia. And it's a specific word in Greek which means a kinship. That we really get to know one another. That there is really fellowship with each other. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 11, 5, 5, 11 Therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you are doing. We are called as the body of Christ to comfort and edify one another. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. I find myself periodically going to Christian events here in Tucson or, or maybe somewhere else where we're at that are not put on by our church. The, the latest one that I can remember was maybe two or three years ago, maybe even longer than that, when we went to go see King and Country down at the TCC. Not put on by us. But we're walking on campus, well, on campus, we're walking in the TCC area, which has now been rented out by Christians, and we got about 10,000 Christians who are there. And so we're walking in, we're walking down the, the walkway, walking into the building, and I'm looking for interaction. I'm excited because I'm with Christians. They don't go to Calvary Chapel, but they're Christians who have come to a Christian concert so I'm looking to make eye contact. But we might as well be in a mall. We might as well be just not know each other at all. We're not acknowledging each other at all. Everybody's just walking down, kind of like, no eye contact, no eye contact. I'm not here to see anybody. And I'm thinking, how is this koinonia at all? There should be an acknowledgement at the very least in order to get to know one another. And I pray that's what happens here at Calvary Tucson. I pray that we will acknowledge one another, catch eye contact, smile at one another, get to know one another. That's the way we get familiar with each other. We're not even at this point asking you to say anything to anybody. And then on top of that, look for opportunities to get to know people. When you see somebody sitting by themselves and you come in and sit down, approach someone, ask them, what's your name? How long have you been here? Uh, is there anything I could pray for you about? Just get, take an interest in them. Take a genuine interest in them. 
Someone says, well, no one's ever come up and talked to me. Have you ever gone up and talked to anybody? I'm not saying you're not right. I'm just asking if you're becoming the solution to that particular problem. The Bible says he who wants friends must himself first be friendly. And you may be here and you may be friendly and people may be shunning you. And if that's the case, I'm sorry that that's happening. But that's not the regular experience. The regular experience is that if you acknowledge people, you start there, you start by getting eye contact, acknowledging people. You move on there, taking an interest in their lives, which means you ask questions and then listen. And then maybe find out if you can pray for them, learn what they're going through, develop a friendship. And now you're able to bear one another's burdens. You're able to be there for one another. There's a closeness. Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. He didn't say, they will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for God. So you walk into a church and all people are like raising their hands and they're like, yes, Lord, we love you, we love you. He didn't say, that's the way you know that you're my disciples. You will know that they are my disciples by the love they have for one another that we interact with one another, care about one another, because that's what the church is. What is the church if it's individuals doing their own thing and leaving? What is the church? It's the koinonia that we have together as we fellowship and get to know one another and can really bear one another's burdens. A few years ago, uh, I, I, we, we had a softball team and I played on our softball team. We played down at Fort Lowell. And I should say a few years ago, it was a lot of years ago. It was like 30 years ago. And um, I, I got there early before our game and I was watching a game in which Sun Life Chapel was playing. And they saw me standing there and they only had eight people. And so they were like, hey, can you play? And I go, yeah, I can play. I'd love to play, actually. And so I, I played on their team. And when we got into the dugout, they said, um, what church do you go to? Because this is a church softball league. And I, and I said, oh, I go to Calvary Chapel. And they were genuinely excited. Here they are, Sun Life Chapel, when they hear I, they, I go to Calvary Chapel, they're like, really? We love Calvary Chapel. We love Robert Furrow. This is great. And I'm like, good. But I'll tell you, the joy in their heart for a brother in Christ really moved me. That they were excited, not because I was Pastor Robert, because they didn't know, but they were excited because I was a genuine Christian and I was there with them as a genuine Christian and we had koinonia. We had fellowship together. Now in a little while they said, well, what's your name? And I said, Robert. <laughs> and they go, what's your last name? Now they had said, we love Pastor Robert. So I said, Furrow. Had they said, we, we don't like Pastor Robert, I would have said Smith. <laughs> My name is Robert Smith. But that has become an example to me of what real koinonia should be like. Let's be the people that when we go to an event that's a Christian event in town, that we're acknowledging the people around us. Let's be the church that strangers can walk into and be acknowledged by people. By, what do I mean by acknowledgement? Eye contact, a smile, just a hi, a nod. It's, it's being a friendly place. And from there, you can go in. Now you get familiar with people. You start seeing people. Pretty soon you're like, hi, there's a rapport and you're shaking hands. And the next thing you know, what's your name? What's your name? Now you've developed that, that interaction with one another. And it can start so simply by just getting out of your own world. Now I realize some of you guys have been hurt. I realize you've been in a church, uh, you got hurt, 
And so you're protecting yourself. So you kind of put that barrier around you. You're like, I'm not a knowledge of people because I was in this church and I got hurt, okay? So you're protecting yourself. I understand that. However, you are never going to have anything of significance in a church if you're not willing to take down those barriers and take the risk of being hurt. The risk of being hurt is that there's something significant happening. You've heard it said that when you lose someone you love deeply, you hurt deeply. Being in a lot of funerals, when I'm talking to people who've lost someone close to them and they're talking about the great love that they had for them and how much they hurt, I will say, wouldn't you rather have had that love and have this pain than not have that love? It's like the old Garth Brooks song, The Dance. I would have missed the pain, but I also would have missed the dance. We want love in our lives. We want great love, even though it's going to lead to great pain. And I'm not saying you won't be hurt. I'm not saying someone here won't say something or do something that's going to hurt you. You're probably going to be hurt. But it's worth taking the risk to be hurt in order to have something significant in our lives. And that koinonia and that fellowship is significant. The third is breaking bread. They continue steadfastly in breaking bread. And I can tell you that theologians are not really sure what this breaking bread means. Here's the two thoughts. Some believe it's hospitality that they were breaking bread from house to house. It's going to make that statement in a moment. That they were breaking, and it was hospitality. It's just somebody inviting somebody over to their house. So if, if this is hospitality, it's like a step up on the koinonia. It's a, a way for us to get into koinonia. Because if you meet a couple, you say, let's go out to, to dinner. You say, come on over to my house on Friday night. We'd love to have you over. Cook you a couple steaks. Now, you're, or, or break bread together. I'll give you a good loaf of bread. N now, we're, we've stepped it up. And there are theologians who believe that. Most theologians, however, believe this is a reference to communion. And here's why. Because of 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and 24, it says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Probably communion. Whether it's communion or hospitality, both good, right? If you look at that and go, you know what? We don't know exactly which one it is. Let's do both. Let's be people that have hospitality and let's be people that break bread together in communion with remembering the body and the blood of Jesus. I don't know what my, my notes freaked out, but they did. They're gone. I'm gonna have to do this by memory. It's like the old days. Of course, if I had paper notes up here, I wouldn't have this problem, would I? Hey, there they are. They have come back to me. That's really good. The final thing is in prayer. Like, I couldn't remember that, right? There's only four things. I've already given this. This is the third time I've given this message. The third thing is in prayer. They continued steadfastly in prayer. And listen, prayer changes things. Prayer doesn't just change you. I've heard people say this before. Prayer doesn't change things. Prayer changes you. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, ask and it will be given to you. Have you by faith asked God for something? Could you trust him? Listen, God said, I will answer you if you ask. Have you asked? Knock and the door will be opened. Seek and you will find. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. In the Old Testament, Hezekiah was on his, on, and sick in bed and Isaiah went to see him. And Isaiah walked in and said, thus says the Lord, you're going to die from this, this disease or from this sickness. 
great bedside manner, Dr. Isaiah, going in. You're going to die from this thing. So he leaves, and, and Hezekiah turns his face, and it's King Hezekiah, turns his face to the wall and cries. And God stops Isaiah in the courtyard and says, go back and tell Hezekiah he's going to live 15 more years. Now, I'll tell you what. I don't know where to put that theologically. God said, you're going to die from this. And then he didn't die from it. But prayers changed his destiny. That's all I know. Prayers change destiny. Prayers change things. Prayers will change the, the, what's going on in the life of someone that you care about that's going down the wrong road. You pray for them. You call out to God. You ask God to move. Be a praying people. They were a praying people. The Bible says in James, uh, uh, excuse me, in Ephesians 6, 18 and 19, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplications for all of the saints. And for me, Paul said, that utterance may be given to me that I might open my mouth boldly and make known to you the mysteries of the gospel. We live in a time where there's great anxiety. And I, I, I watched a couple of psychologists talking with each other about why they believe there's so much anxiety in our world today. Their conclusion, this is psychologists, their conclusion was that we have too much free time on our hands. We don't have to work that hard to get what we need. And so we become introspective. And when we become introspective, that causes anxiety. Now, whether or not that's true, I don't know. This is a couple of psychologists. We kind of want to maybe listen to them because it's a psychologist. They may know what they're talking about. They also may be whacked, okay? <laughs> However, and what they were saying is there was a day when all the guy could do is work. In order to put food on the table, he had to work all the time and he could never be thinking about, I wonder this about myself. I wonder that about myself. He's like, I got to get my paycheck. I got to go buy the food. And then there's weeds to be pulled at home and I got that to do over there. They're just so busy just making life. They weren't able to be introspective and they didn't have all the anxiety. That's their point. But listen to how the Bible tells us to take care of anxiety. Be anxious for nothing, but everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. Be anxious for nothing, but everything with prayer and supplication. Let anxiety be a reminder to you that you will pray about what you're anxious over. Begin to pray with all supplication when you have anxiety. And it promises the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Let's look at the rest of this text. Verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul. I wonder what that's about. What kind of fear came upon every soul? That they wanted to live godly? That they were considering being Christians? And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. The apostles had a special gift as an apostle that was more powerful, more miracles than the gift of the Holy Spirit that was given to the church in general. When we say that there are not miracles, apostles aren't doing miracles today, we're not saying we don't have the gifts of the Spirit today. We're saying we don't have apostles as they did, the bridge between the ministry of Jesus and the church until we got the scriptures. So they did have this special anointing, special power, and they were doing miracles as well. And we're going to read about one next week. Well, we'll read about one in a month, uh, next month, that they're doing, that's, that's the next chapter, chapter three. And it says, all who believed were together and all had all things in common. They sold their possessions and their goods and they divided among all 
anyone who had a need. Now, this isn't a commune because they didn't buy a, a piece of property and commune on it. It just means they threw their finances into one pot and then they all paid their bills out of the one pot that they threw their finances into. So some try to use this for communism, but this is going to stop. It's, there's, something's going to happen and it's going to say, no one else joined them for fear. Okay, we're going to get there. So we'll talk more about this early commune, not where they lived, but they put all their money into one pot and they paid bills out of that pot. Some people say, well, I kind of like that. Well, wait until you see what happens. Okay? Wait, wait until you see what happens. And we'll talk about it more later. So just put a little mark there. We're going to get to more information later on in the book of Acts. It says, uh, so they continue daily in one accord, which means unity. Incredibly important that we're unified. You know, the Bible says, if someone among you is divisive, meaning they're running around the church causing division, warn them once, warn them twice, and then remove them from the church. Here recently, there was a guy that would sit out at the coffee table and he was divisive. He was teaching people that they had to keep the law. He's telling people that I was teaching things that weren't true. We warned him and we warned him again. We warned him more than two times. We warned him several times. And finally, we went to him and said, you can no longer come to the church because you're being divisive. He said, you have to Matthew 18 me. No, we don't. Matthew 18 is when someone offends you, you go to that person and talk with them. This is divisiveness. And we removed him from the church because God wants us to be in one accord. Does that mean you can't believe something different? Of course you can. We can have differences. We're not going to agree on everything. But the greatest unity comes out of when we have slight differences, but we can still be unified. There might be such differences that we don't walk together anymore. The Bible says, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? So we have to understand that in order to have this, this unity, that there has to be some level of agreement among us. And if there are such differences, we aren't able to walk together. We understand that. But if a person is divisive, you remove them because we all need to be in one accord, which of course is the most spiritual card that there is. The, the dad joke of all dad jokes, right? It goes on to say, and breaking bread from house to house. Now there's our breaking bread again. Was this taking communion from house to house? Was this breaking bread from house to house? Now, it also says, so they continue daily in one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were in a larger group in the temple and smaller group house to house. When you hear a, uh, a home church movement tell you the early church only met in houses, they're not telling you the truth. Paul met in the school of Tyrannius in Ephesus. Yes, they had churches from house to house. House churches are good. There are strengths in house churches that larger churches can't have. There are also strengths in larger churches that house churches can't have. God never said, the church needs to be this size, can't be bigger than this, needs to be this big. Never gave us any of those things. Why? So we could do church in our cultures as we are able to minister to people what that is. If you go to a house church, praise God. I'm glad for you. That's awesome. I'm sure it's great. If you go to a larger church, I'm glad for you. It's awesome. There are, there are limitations in both of them. There are positives in both of them. But don't think that your way is better. That just leads to pride. Well, we go to a larger church, that means we're better than you. Well, we only go house to house, not like those large churches. We're better than you. Somehow, I don't think that's how God wants us to be interacting with one another. 
It says then, what I read earlier, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. That's what we want God to do. Three things in closing. Christianity is undeniably a team sport. It's not, it, it's not tennis. <clears throat> it's not golf. It's a team sport. It's basketball. Go Wildcats. It's U of A basketball. <coughs> it is us working together for the sake of the gospel of Christ. Number two, the word of God is more than just a launching point. The, the word of God needs to be covered and the truths covered when we teach. <coughs> we, don't, we don't launch off of the Bible. I'm going to freak out the, the media team right now. Like, where's he going? What's he doing? What's happening now? Where's he at? I'm here. Hey. Sorry. But the word of God is more than just a launching point. We want to cover it. We want to know what it says. There's not enough time left in my lifetime to cover everything that's in the Bible. There's not enough time in your lifetime, and you may be in your 20s and you're here. If you're going to make a life of knowing the Word of God, you don't have enough time to be able to cover everything in the Bible. Don't launch off of it into your own philosophical aspects of what you want people to know. My, my belief is, is that people will get tired of that and don't want it. What people want is the Word of God explained and applied so that we can know what it means and says. And finally... We do our part and God does his part. We water, we plant. The Bible says one man waters, another man plants, and God adds the increase. It doesn't say one man plants, one man waters, and one man adds the increase. God adds the increase. God always adds the increase. It's God who's, who's saving people. It's God who's moving in people's lives. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. We just take these four priorities and we make them a part of our lives. This is what we are as a church and this is who we should be as a church and we'll be standing strong for Christ. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can take time to look at your word, to see these truths that are here. We pray that we would indeed keep these four areas. Be encouraged, Lord, to keep the apostles' doctrine, to, to get to know one another, to acknowledge one another, to, to build koinonia. We thank you for these things. Let this church be the kind of church you want it to be. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.